little bit of a content warning for you. This episode is very, very heavy on the Jewish slurs. So listen at your own risk. By the way, I will say someone once called me a Yid affectionately, like years ago. She's like, my Yid, because she was Jewish. I think she was excited to like see another Jewish person. And I was like, what? And I was like, I kind of liked it. Like we had a kinship. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer. Back with the team. The gang's all here again. Tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibowitz. Shalom to you. Matzah stuffed and shellacked in schmaltz, are you, Leo? Uh, I'm schmaltzish. All right, because we're going to do a bit of a Passover check-in. And tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Button. Hello. Hello. This week, three insanely interesting Jews. For Passover... Jews of the Week. We will invite Gentiles to the table, but the featured guests on the podcast will be Jews. Orthodox sex therapist Dr. Batsheva Marcus returns to talk about her new book, The Star of Entourage, and You Don't Mess with the Zohan, Emmanuel Shriki, one of my favorite actresses of all time, joins us to talk about her Moroccan Jewish-Canadian heritage and her work on interracial understanding. And finally, we spoke with Dr. Shuli Rubin-Schwartz, who was recently appointed as the Chancellor of Jewish Theological Seminary, and she's the first woman to hold that job. So a great episode for your Pol Hamoed, your intervening days of the holiday, your middle of the week, when you just feel that the matzah is drying out your skin and uh, rising up your gullet. And I don't know, I'm lying. I love matzah. It's not so much a, a smorgasbord as it is an audio Passover plate of offerings. Can we can we talk about Passover? Oh, let's. Yeah, sure. How was your Passover, Stephanie? Who decided that like the way this was going to go was like, okay, so you like don't eat anything for a long time. So it's like you, you get like a piece of matzah, but you're like, okay, I'm going to eat this whole thing of matzah. You get some horseradish, like you get some haroset. Some hilo sandwich. Yeah, like, so you're like, okay, oh wait, give me some more matzah. Hold on, I'm still hungry. Like, let me, pass me the matzah. That's the only thing I can eat right now at this point in the Seder. Oh, some bitter herbs? Bitter herb or derv? Yeah, like, get me some salt water. Get me some- <laughs> Herb derv, if you will. A sprig of parsley. And then you don't eat anything for a long time. You literally fill up on matzah, which is not a healthy thing for any human to do. And then the lamb. It is the lamb. Eat the lamb. Yeah, and then like 45 minutes later, they're like, okay, here's the massive meal. And you're just like, but I'm so full of crumbs. I wonder what this could all be a metaphor for. Escaping bondage, suffering in the desert, and finally getting to, you know, the land of milk and honey. I'm just I'm just freestyling here. No, but this is kind of like, this thing happened at my sister's wedding where my, my best friend Irene was there with her now husband. And they had been to a wedding the week before where it was only a cocktail hour and no seated dinner. And so they had made the mistake, like they didn't really play it right. Oh, they didn't eat enough at the cocktail hour. They didn't realize that it was just a cocktail hour. You know, things aren't always clear. So they get there and they like go to town on the cocktail hour because they were like, this might be it. <laughs> Forgetting that this, of course, was a Jewish wedding and this was exactly certainly right. not it. Not knowing the ethos of our people. And then they come around being like, steak or bigger steak? <laughs> and uh, so they were like, we played it wrong again. <laughs> anyway, I was kind of thinking about that because it's like, and then it's like, okay, you know what? Let's eat, let's eat like a big chunk of meat. Let's get some like starchy potatoes in there. I know, Mark, I know your family doesn't have meat. You probably don't have this problem. We eat very well for Passover, though. I could discuss, but go ahead. Yeah, but you're like, who decided that these are the heaviest foods in the entire world? You're going to eat like a huge brisket. God decided. And you're also going to have like that potpourri of matzah underneath it in your stomach. It's just not okay. Is this, is that the metaphor? Very bad hospitality is what you're saying. Like okay. internal hospitality of our own bodies. The hostess should be fired. Whoever designed this did not have a degree from Cornell University's School of Hotel Management and Hospitality Arts is what you're saying. Or like gastroenterology. I don't know. This is crazy. See, but that but that to me is also the sign that if there was like a true reform Judaism movement, <laughs> why not reform like a few more appetizers in the Seder? Like just a little amuse-bouche, if you will, before the lamb comes. We have the Hillel sandwich. Let's have the Oppenheimer. Petty four. Exactly. It's insane that we get so excited about the Hillel sandwich just because it's food, but it's barely (laughs) food. It's literally, it's like cracker, bitter herb, and spicy thing. When I was researching 13 at a day, my book, which I've now retitled The Bar Mitzvah Crasher, I went to a bar mitzvah of twins in Ridgefield, Connecticut. And later on, I interviewed their uncle, Roger Schechter, who with his husband had me for Passover. That was the, the interview was like, sure, come on such and such a day. I said, I realized that you realize that's Passover. He's like, you'll come for the Seder. And they had this wonderful thing with the Seder they did at their home, which was they just had crudite out on the table when you started. There's nothing halakhically improper about having lots of celery and carrots and radishes out to just munch on along the way. Roger Schechter, professor of law, George Washington, I haven't seen you for a decade or more. If you're out there, just know that your Passover innovation has never left me. Whenever I'm hungry after about hour one of the Seder, I think- God bless you. He knew how to do it right. 
But Stephanie, since you're on fire to talk about Passovers, just, you know, quick update. How, how was your Passover? I told, just told you. Besides the food. <laughs> besides the Yes, yes. Love it, love it, love it. Great. It was wonderful. You're missing the point, Mark. She already shared the important bits <laughs> with you. Why are you thing, asking her? The thing that happens every year on Passover, it's like you wake up the next morning and you're like, what just happened? My in-laws drink Manischewitz. <laughs> Bless them. That does not help either. You wake up the next morning with like the sugar rush the meat sweats. You're like, what just happened? And we did it exactly the way we were supposed to do. It's great in the moment. And then the whole next day, you're just like, what was that? Oh, we're going to do it again? What do we do to ourselves? We weren't going to do it again because, you know, small. we had a couple people the first night. And then Claire and Anna rebelled and said, oh, no, no, we're doing second night. So we went through a, an abbreviated one. We got all the songs out the second night and uh, Elijah's cut. We, we did the, the highlights the second night. By the way, I have a theory. You're never more Jewishly literate than you are when you're like either in Jewish preschool or like Hebrew school where they like really focus on the holidays. Absolutely. The Hebrew school that you leave when you're 12. Yes, exactly. I will say my kids Jewish day school, they're Parsha knowledge. Schools are good at different things. Some schools are bicultural or Hebrew language immersive and some schools are this and some schools are that. And the knowledge of the Torah stories and the Parsha, like that fundamental, like what week are we in? And the story is very strong in my children. And it's it's much stronger than it is in me. Like they'll, they're like, come on, dad, it's Kititsa. Like you didn't know that? Moron. My nephews sing Bim Bam, that song. Bim Bam, Bim 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 Bam. That's what they <laughs> oh, sing. And they it. sing Shabbat Shalom. Uh. Hey. And I'm like, you never sing these songs after you're like 10. But those are the songs you sing when you're a child. Speak for yourself, Botnik. You do when you become a parent. There's a, <laughs> there's a lot of Bim Bam in some people's futures, let me tell you. All right, Leo, you may tell us about your Passover. <laughs> I had a very meaningful Passover. We did two nights. They were lovely. We really had a very meaningful time. But I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about the week before Passover. It was the week before Passover and all through the house, two children were roaming because they didn't have school. And so being of sound mind and body and fully vaccinated and with a taste for adventure, Lisa and I packed the car, packed the kids and drove down to the other, other promised land, Orlando, Florida. Orlando. To go on a magical mystery ride of all the theme parks. By the way, this is your own personal exodus. Right. That's exactly right. So the planning and the problems, if you will, as with every good exodus, the problems begin with the planning, right? So I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, these freaking parks, Universal Studios, Harry Potter Experience, and Disney, they open insanely early. And if you're not there by the crack of dawn, you are not riding any of the rides. You have to be there before seven. And since we're on daylight savings or anti-daylight savings. Oh my God, please don't talk to me about it. It's EDT. I, I only use EDT now. We're back in regular times. Since we're back in regular times, the correct time to pray, if you observe such things, starts actually really, really late. So I would not be able to pray before I left the hotel room. I would have to pray in the park. So I go online and try to find like places to daven in Disney. <laughs> Nothing comes up. It's like, man, I cannot be the first person to ever have had that thought. And then I think to myself, who else would be in the position of having to publicly pray several times a day in public in a resort? <laughs> and I Google places to pray Muslim in Disney. And immediately these incredible subreddit groups of observant Muslims come up with like hand-drawn maps of all the best places that you could just like kind of sneak aside and just pray undisturbed in Disney. It made me feel so proud and happy to be an American. I was like, look at us coming together in the Magic Kingdom. That's amazing. It's also like the religious experience you had with like the halal cart one time mm -hmm. when you were like, we are the same. Question, to pray as a Muslim, it requires actually like you, I've seen you shuckle in the airport. They really do need a lot more space than than you. I do the truckle shuckle. Right. They, they need space to really do the whole thing with to the get down. rug and everything. To get down with Allah. I love that. But I needed just the place. Okay. So I have my list of places. And then it's the first day where we're there. We are in a perfect replica of Diagon Alley from Harry Potter. Right. And I'm standing there. And Diagon Alley, it's, it's perfectly constructed. It's like so incredibly beautiful. There's the Gringotts Bank, run, of course, by Jews, swarthy goblins <laughs> with large noses and, you know, love of money. And on top of the bank, they put a huge dragon, which at completely random moments in time, just spits like fire and roars, like real freaking fire and roars. And I'm standing there and I'm davening. And as soon as I say, Ivarcha Adonai Vishmarecha, 
the dragon spits out fire. I was like, Hashem, you are truly everywhere. Like, wow. <laughs> this is, Shachris in, in Diagon Alley is incredible. Did you bring your talus and your tefillin also? You know I did. Now, I remember when you did all this, it was Marif, so you didn't have the tefillin on. I remember when you did all this at the gate at the airport and some of the weird looks you get from the security people. Any weird looks? Let me tell you, Mincha inside Cinderella's castle, no weird looks at all. <laughs> Mincharella? Because those Mincharella, <laughs> Americans just looked at us and be like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's fine. That, that man's pretty. Plus, they'd all seen the Florida Project, so they knew this was the least weird stuff that went on in Orlando. Did anyone confuse you for like a goofy-esque character and try to get your autograph? Like, they're like, is that the mensch on the bench? (laughs) Can I get it for my autograph book? Is this from like Mulan 2? It's Marif Mouse. (laughs) (laughs) It was completely magical. I will state that if you're following such things, Cinderella Castles turns to the east and Hogwarts is facing west. Make of that whatever you will. Whatever you will. I also didn't eat for a whole week because literally the entire offering, it's all order by app and you can't alter it. So everything is all trafe. It's not just all trafe. It's like, oh, they have a continental breakfast, which is literally some fruit and a croissant. And it comes with like three servings of ham. It's unbelievable. So is there no kosher food in Orlando? There is in Disney because Disney loves you very much and cares about you. But you have to order it in advance. And I sort of botched that. So the shrinkening of Liel continues. <laughs> Not that there was any time to eat. All I did while you guys were off satering and mouseketeering was diligently, assiduously, industriously sit at my desk with my quill and winnow the elite eight of the Jewish Name of the Year contest down to the final four. Are you ready? In the final four, you ready? My early favorite, Trudy Hope Schlamowitz, will face off. And I feel this is a contest of the Hadassah ladies, the ants, your favorite Tanta. The battle of the ants. I don't know though. Maybe her competitor is a 22-year-old sorority president at Duke. Hepzibah Maidenbaum. Trudy Hope Schlamowitz versus Hepzibah Maidenbaum in the Western bracket. In the East, Talia Wienerweiner, Wiener with an E-I, Wiener with an I, will face off against her grandpa and yours from the old country, Muttel Dimschitz. So there we have it. Trudy Hope Schlamowitz, Hepzibah Maidenbaum, Talia Wienerweiner, Muttel Dimschitz. All of you at this stage. I was team Dimschitz from the very first. Okay, Liel's going from Muttel Dimschitz. Robert Scaramucci, a producer. Trudy Hope all the way. Trudy Hope Schlamowitz. Stephanie Buttoning. I'm on Wienerweiner because that is something she says every single day to people. And it's like, it's not that it's so Jewish. It's just that it's like such a great play. She obviously chose to hyphenate. I love it. Well, that is the question. Did she choose to hyphenate? Is it a marriage thing or is it a parent thing? You know, is mom a wiener and dad's a whiner? Either way, someone was like, let's do this. Let's go for it. Agreed. Someone someone went all in. Ellie Blyer. Wiener, whiner is too good to be true. And Josh Cross. Look, <laughs> Trudy Hope was was a favorite from the beginning, and she even beat out my personal favorite, Ari Goldheimer. Hepzibah Maidenbaum is almost too good to be true, and I could go with either one of them. Wiener, whiner, like it's easy, and muffled dim shits is also easy. Like, they're all so good. But I think I got to go with Trudy Hope because she she went through life with the name Trudy Hope and Schlamowitz, and it's glorious. Like, this person is a better person for having gone through life being called Trudy Hope Schlamowitz. There's something so wonderfully mid-century portmanteau about Trudy Hope. Star Wars 4, a new Trudy Hope. We are- <laughs> She's sitting in an Ames chair with a cognac and a cigar. Reading Hannah Arendt exactly. in German. Exactly. But part of why Trudy Hope is such a good name is that it's a little gentilic, imagine, like Hope. And Trudy, you're right. Meanwhile, Motel Dimschitz then anglicizes his name to Mark Lauren and becomes a famous <laughs> couturier. Guys, I think you have this wrong. It's actually Motel Dimschitz and it's like a really cool Airbnb property. Uh... It's where you stay near the international terminal at JFK the night before your flight. Or the airport in Ukraine. <laughs> Oh, the motel uh, dim shit. I will say something. I was hesitant to this idea as someone with an objectively bad last name. I was sort of like, why? What is, I don't get it. I don't, I don't like. By which you mean an objectively great last name. Amazing. Stephanie Butnick. I had a societally acceptable reason to change it when I got married. It did not change it. Jokes on all of you playground bullies. I didn't really get it, but I, I'm into it now. Okay. Like, I love Talia Wienerweiner. Like, we should be, ce- this is a celebration of all of these amazing names that build freaking character. The Jews building character since about 1,000 BCE. News of the Jews N-O-T-J News of the Jews uh-huh. 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 Uh-huh.
not a lot this week. It's as if the world's news, I mean, a little election in Israel. We're not even going to do the election in Israel. Everyone tune in in September when we're going to do this for the fifth time. So just two things. The first is the New York Times ran a lovely piece about a high school baseball star in Nevada named Ellie Klieger, who's orthodox and who's a real prospect, who could be a serious Division One player, could even possibly be a serious pro player if everything falls into place. But he doesn't just get playing baseball if it's Yum Kipper or whatever. He doesn't play Friday night and Saturday afternoon games. He also observes Tanis Esther and some Gedalia. Right, he's fasting half the season as well. He's hangry. And go read the article. The best part, though, is the correction at the end, which refers to the article's description of Havdalah, how after Shabbat, the whole family gets together and ends the Sabbath, right? And it says, an earlier version of this article described incorrectly one way the Kligmans mark the end of the Sabbath on a game day. They sip grape juice, not grapefruit juice instead of wine. And the idea that in the Times, in an article by a guy whose name was like Waldstein or Maidenbaum or whatever, Wiener Weiner, and then it was edited by like Cohen and Goldfarb or whatever. And yet somehow they think that the Jewish ceremonial drink is not grape juice, but grapefruit juice. It's just very precious. It's funny because it's it's a really smart, interesting article. It's not like, look at this weirdo person who does the thing. It's a smart, thoughtful piece about like, can you join this professional league if you are literally not playing two days a week? And it's, I think it presents a lot of questions. And it's funny because we've obviously like canonized Kofax, but this is a much more interesting, relevant thing. We're like, okay, actually someone who is traditionally observant and what does it mean when you put them in this league. Thank you for, for bringing depth to it. Can we go back to the New York Times being absolute morons now? Sure. What's, what's, what? <laughs> no, that's it. That's, that's, that's the show. It. It's just really, this, this is the thing that you don't know. Even if you're not Jewish, like that's the thing that you don't know. Like, have you ever seen a religious ceremony connected with freaking grapefruit juice? <laughs> and then the natives uh, sip their papayas. <laughs> As they do in their traditional realms. Like, what is wrong with you people? That would be great though, right? It if would. Shabbat was, you know, wine, Manischewitz, grape juice, but Havdalah was a Long Island iced tea, was a multi, with a <laughs> little- mean, Depends on where you are. An umbrella on top. <laughs> also in the news of the Jews, this is pulling a little bit from a couple of weeks ago when Myers Leonard, the he's an NFL player, right? NFL or NBA? NBA. Tall dude, Myers Leonard. He was play, He was streaming his video game, playing on Twitch, something that still boggles my mind. There's people who- whose sport is to watch others playing video games. Said the guy whose sport is to look up funny Jewish names. Go on, continue. <laughs> Touche. What happened? He like called someone he was playing online a kike bitch, right? If you read any news coverage, you would have no idea what word he said. What the word was, because right. Because they bleeped it out. It was a blank bitch. <laughs> An anti-Jewish slur was used. What is that? Heine? I had to Google all over the place. I finally, I think in the Daily Mail in England, found that the word was kike. Then... Flash forward a week or two, and there's an article coming out of Duxbury, Massachusetts, where the football team is calling plays, and it's like, you know, 72, Auschwitz, 94, Rabbi, hike. But they actually didn't say hike. <laughs> uh, you can retire on that one, but I'm done. I'm uh, turning my recorder and, off. You know, I was just thinking, we really are at an age where the level of ignorance about, there's two kinds of ignorances going on there, right? One is just the level of ignorance that a bunch of presumably mostly Gentile kids in a wealthy Boston suburb don't understand that using Auschwitz as one of their, you know, hike signals before snapping the ball is icky and offensive because they don't, maybe they don't know what Auschwitz is or what the relevance is, unclear, or they don't, it feels like 500 years ago to them. That's the other thing that's going on is much as 20-year-olds say, think that the Beatles played at the same time as U2, like it's all on YouTube, right? Auschwitz might as well be in 1750 to them, right? Then you have this other kind of ignorance, which is really interesting and I want to talk a little bit more about, which is that Myers Leonard said, I didn't know that Kike was an anti-Jewish slur. He thought it was like prick or asshole or douche or... I don't know. I could, I'm here all day. But <laughs> Please don't be. <laughs> point, what was yours, Liel? Douche canoe. He just didn't know what kike was. And it occurred to me, a lot of, I think Gentiles don't know anti-Jewish slurs anymore. It's not that there isn't anti-Semitism. It's that if someone's going to yell something at an Orthodox looking man or woman from a passing car, it's going to be, hey, you fucking Jew with your money and your yarmulke and your menorah. But they don't have access to any slurs. There's no kike, sheeny, heeb. Yid, which is interesting, right? I mean, is it a good thing? I'm not sure what's going on. There. Here's the interesting thing. The Myers Leonard thing happened a few weeks ago. We obviously had like pre-scheduled stuff. There was a Passover. We really missed like the fact that that happened when we like weren't recording live banter was, was I think, sad for us. But, um, you know, I think I had a really interesting conversation with a friend who basically said the K word, which is, by the way, a word I don't think I've said until this thing happened ever in my life. I'd never really experienced it. I was never called it. I never heard anyone saying it. That's what we call Kanish in my family. K word. And so my friend made the argument that actually it's 
like these gaming sites. It's like Twitch and 4chan, the message board, that are single-handedly keeping alive the K-word, kike. Like, they are the only ones using it. And it's it's become this weird part of, like, internet culture or, like, that that sub-sub-sub-sub-sub internet culture where these are the people who are saying it. And no one else says it because it's such a right. random, weird word. So it's not just a Myers-Leonard thing. You would have heard it probably if you were gaming on Twitch as he was. Wait, could we go to Robert? Robert Scaramuccia, who's our gaming expert here. Yeah, Robert, do you say kike a lot, Robert? Robert. <laughs> Only when you're not working for us. Uh, <laughs> I'm not in those corners of Twitch. I can confirm there are good corners of Twitch, but there are definitely very bad corners. You're in classy Twitch. Oh, of course. Just watch chess all day. Twitch. This is like the Pepe version of 4chan where it's like a little alt-right, but it seeped into internet culture, this word. I'm telling you, like when we saw the news reports, um, I mean, me and my husband, who is the Jewish reporter and the sports reporter, where finally a story converged on both of us. We were just like, why is he saying this word? It's so random. I've never heard anyone young say this word. When did he hear this word? And actually, a friend was like, no, no, this word is on the internet now. It it exists in a different context. It's not someone yelling at you on the street calling you that. It's not like a politician saying it. Like, it's, it's a weird, weird thing that exists in a new place now. That's so gross. Thus, more evidence that obviously I'm way overreacting when I say that gaming and computers are the death of culture, right? I, I take it all back. Obviously, that world is— I, I'm, I'm, I'm rising for the defense here. Here's the thing. When you have a culture that, for better or worse, right, and there's a lot of for better in there, but invests heavily in—I don't want to use the word suppressing, but certainly regulating speech and the boundaries thereof, which is a huge part of what culture is right now— I kind of like it. And I like it as a Jew, you know, that there is a corner in which you could come and say horrible things that you don't truly understand. Because to me, that is much more conducive. Like Myers Leonard is going to have a much better education now than he would have had he just tepidly followed the rules because he actually learned something now about the meaning of this word. I mean, he's on the the apology tour. Like Julian Edelman invited him to Shabbos in right. Miami. See? and Wonderful. Yeah, I think that works well if you're Myers Leonard, right? Like, there's a trivial sliver of truth in what you're saying, Leo, which is... That's the title of my autobiography, A Trivial Sliver of Truth. A Trivial Sliver of Truth. Yes, it seems like Myers Leonard will now be able to meet with Nick Cannon and Shmuley Boteach in the world's most annoying Shabbos dinner. At, at Cantor's away, Deli. And- right? <laughs> <laughs> and like, but all those other douche bros on Twitch who are just calling each other kike left and right, nobody's then giving them serious learning afterwards. They're just being toxic. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, Twitch then every session concludes with, and now kids, let us teach you about the events of 1941. It's, it's not Daniel Tiger. Right. Heart-shaped <laughs> pizza is one of the ways we say, I love you. It's not Jews don't come back when they go to the camps. There's, there's none of that, right? But I'm saying, I love the fact that there is this place where bad words and unacceptable terms could still Live and, and this leads me to what I think we need to do. Look, other minorities have done a lot of work. I don't want to say reclaiming bad words used against them, but actually sort of building them up and incorporating them in a way that actually feels almost educational. Like one reason why the N-word is so explosive is not just because it has been, you know, heavily incorporated by hip hop, but it has been kept alive. Through that, it has been like a folk project to basically make sure that this doesn't go away. We need to reclaim the the K word. But we've re- we've already reclaimed. We've done so much work. We've reclaimed Hebe and Yid. Not really, like as a joke, not as a thing that you would actually use in conversation. Okay, I'm just gonna throw this one to the listeners. We need a kike cocktail, is what I'm saying. Yeah, <laughs> a kike tail. It's just such a bad. It's a hate. It's the word. I don't like it. I don't like the sound, the harshness of it. It's got the double Ks. So here's the thing. I want everything. Ex- accept bad folk etymologies of the word kike because I've done that research. Nobody knows where it comes from. But I want to know, is it reclaimable? Is it out there? Have you been twitching and calling people kikes? Also, if we were to reclaim a word, how would we do it? And should it be this word or should it be like sheeny, which is a favorite of mine that you haven't seen since about 1937? Again, I never, I don't know where that comes from. I don't really know where Jaime comes from. Jaime to me is like a funny word. Well, Jaime, I think we know Jesse Jackson called New York Jaime Town because there were, he felt there were a lot of Jews there and a lot of old Jews named Jaime. What's the name Jaime? Like Jaime. Like Jaime's Deli in Philadelphia. 
I thought it was like Heimowitz or something. Which is different from Heine, which is your rear end. And I've never said that. But we call that a tush. Right. Question, because you are very committed to the Jewess reclamation project. So I'm curious, like you, you fall a little bit differently here. No, no, no. I'm not against. I'm into reclaiming all sorts of things because I don't like it when words have that supreme power over us. Yeah, same here. I just think Kike is not a good candidate. You have to pick and choose wisely is my point. Oh, okay. I, I will totally be on that, on board with that. I like Sheeny. Let's let's bring it back. <laughs> it's it's funny. funny. I'm into Jaime. As a supporter of Tottenham Hotspur, I think Yid is the best of the bunch. Yeah. And we should allow that one and reclaim that one entirely. It has the advantage that it means Jew in Yiddish. I mean, maybe it's a little Ashkenormative normative, though. Well, Jaime is too. Hey, if anyone's got a good slur that people in Spanish-speaking or Arab lands call Jews that we don't know. Yeah, I want some Inquisition-era fire. We'll reclaim that one, too. We're here for you, Jews. 914-570-4869 or write to us unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Our next guest, Emmanuel Shriki, starred as Sloane in Entourage and as Dahlia in You Don't Mess with the Zohan. Mark spoke with her about some really interesting intergroup dialogue she is a part of, her Jewish heritage, and much more. Our Jew of the Week is Emmanuel Shriki. She is a terrific actor who many of you will know from her work in Entourage, but also in the very, very important classic of Jewish filmography, You Don't Mess with the Zohan, in which she played Dahlia. She's more recently been in a lot of other stuff, including the movie The Night Before Christmas. And she is with us this week uh, to talk about the Black Jewish Entertainment Alliance, which is something that she's involved in. Emmanuel, how are you? I'm well, Mark. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. It's cold here. And I presume, are you in LA right now as we talk? I wish I was. I'm in Vancouver. So it's cold and raining. (laughs) So let's, we'll go back to the very, very beginning. You are Canadian Moroccan. Is that right? Yeah. French, Jewish, Moroccan. My parents emigrated from Morocco in the 60s. I was born in Montreal raised in Toronto, and three years ago became an American. Oh, wow. Well, welcome. We don't know a lot of Canadians who chose to become American during the past four years. It's like a time when actually, I think in general, things were trending in the other direction. A lot of us were thinking of becoming Canadians. Why did you become American three years ago? You know, I have been living in the States. I had my, I had many visas. I had my green card. And the States was my home for the better part of 20 years. And I just knew that regardless of the politics, it was going to remain my home. And I just figured, I want to vote. <laughs> <laughs> so you did vote. You, you just voted in your first American presidential election. Indeed. Yes. Well, mazel tov, as we say. So what brings you to Vancouver now, aside from the fact that it's one of the most gorgeous places in the world? It really is one of the most gorgeous places. I'm shooting a new show for the CW. It's the new Superman and Lois show. Ah, excellent. Are you Lois? I am not. I play Lana Lang. I don't know if you're familiar with the comic or not, but Lana Lang was Superman's first love. You know, I did know that. And of the three hosts of this show, the other two of whom you don't get to meet, I'm the least comics knowledge. I'm basically the least comics knowledgeable person in the world. I want to get to the Black Jewish Entertainment Alliance. But again, before we do, say a little bit more. So your parents left Morocco for Canada. Why why did they move? Was it just money, freedom, all those reasons people moved to North America? I mean, yes. (laughs) At that time, in the early mid-60s, a lot of the Jews were leaving Morocco. It was like this mass exodus. And they kind of went everywhere. They went to France. They went to Brazil, to the States, to Canada. My parents aren't alive anymore. I never got huge, huge clarity. My understanding was with the change of the king, things could potentially become more tense. Even though Jews and Arabs in Morocco has always lived very peacefully, it was just that it was time to leave, unfortunately. So they went to Montreal because my dad could go to university and, you know, Montreal is French speaking. Though I don't kept in mind that it was going to be like the brutal Montreal winters. (laughs) Morocco. That must have been crazy. (laughs) Yes, seriously. Didn't know what he was in for. So so when you got to Montreal, my sense of that 
Jewish community is that it's mostly Ashkenazi, that it's mostly European. And you were coming in as North African, obviously French speaking, but North African Jews, non-Ashkenazi. Was there a big community of North African and Middle Eastern Jews in Montreal? Or were you guys like the odd people out in an Ashkenazi world? Huge population to this day. I think one of the biggest in North America is, I think, in Montreal. It's like Montreal, Toronto, Los Angeles. This thing that you're involved in, the Black Jewish Entertainment Alliance, just an extraordinary cast of people, Black and Jewish, who have come together to do this coalition. I'm curious, first of all, what it is, and second, how you got involved. It's a platform for Black and Jewish entertainment leaders to come together on the basis of the two communities' long history, shared values, and common interests. The Alliance builds a platform for constructive and open dialogue where we explore both communities' narratives and confront issues like bias and structural racism and historic and contemporary racism and anti-Semitism, which is all happening. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the people involved, like Tiffany Haddish, are Black and Jewish, so that's a community as well. But in entertainment, a lot of Blacks, a lot of Jews. Have you ever experienced as a Jewish woman any misunderstanding? I mean, one would think that in some ways it would be the least anti-Semitic community or the most pro-Jewish that there is. But I'm curious if you have ever, if it's ever been uncomfortable to be a Jewish woman in that space. It never, ever was until social media. On my Instagram, on Fridays, I generally post happy Friday, Shabbat Shalom. I grew up celebrating Shabbat and I still do. So it's on my Instagram that I've had like, anti-Semitic shit. And I was like, whoa. And it kind of, it's funny though, because it made me want to continue to do my posts. Like I was like, well, forget it. You're not winning. But generally speaking, no, I feel like I've been pretty unscathed in that regard. Not to say that I haven't seen it or heard it, but personally, it's never been a huge thing in my life. You asked me before, why is this important to me? I think it's important to say that first and foremost, I believe in anything that unites people for the highest good. The uprising in June, it not only woke us up collectively, I think it woke me up to the sort of deep-rooted injustice and racism towards Black people in America, just in a really intense way than ever before. And then it also stirred up so much hate crimes and anti-Semitism. And the most heartbreaking part of all was that it stirred up these tensions between the Black and Jewish communities, which historically we've always stood by each other. So for me to come on with this alliance, it is just so important for me because I think it, again, you know, it creates that form for ongoing conversations to help both communities understand the issues of mutual concern, right? And to work together to fight bigotry and racism and anti-Semitism in all of its forms. And I think as you're probably well aware, there's so much misinformation in the media that causes rifts and divisiveness. And it's clear as day that we are stronger and better tackling these issues together than apart, full stop. So I really believe in this alliance. I think it's really important at this time. Absolutely. And I should say that some of the people involved, Larry King was going to be involved, but he died. Eric LaSalle from ER and Cameron Mitchell, Warren Moon, the quarterback, Nick Cannon, such an important person to have involved in this alliance at this time. Mackay Pfeiffer, Jeremy Piven, Billy Porter. I mean, it's just an amazing list. And I hope you guys end up with some great events, especially post-COVID. One of the interesting discussions in our own community is whether Jews are, quote, white, whether we're passing as white, whether we're actually white, whether we have white privilege. And it becomes really interesting when we talk about Jews who are not Ashkenazi and who, in many cases, have ancestry in Africa. Has that been an interesting question for you, your own whiteness? Yes, especially in the last couple of years when diversity has been such a big topic in Hollywood. You know, I've always been this brown-skinned girl that just past as white. As much as I was Moroccan and sort of looked exotic, I was like this exotic white girl. And then suddenly when the diversity thing happened in Hollywood in like a big, big way, I suddenly became other, 
which was really interesting. I remember having this discussion with my agents and I was like, oh my God, did that happen? Is that me now? Which whatever, it's honestly, it's neither here nor there. It hasn't affected me really either way, but it is interesting. And I think having North African ancestry and looking the way I do, I guess, compared to like a blonde hair, blue eyed person, I'm aware that I'm not typically white. Let's just say. <laughs> right. No, you are definitely, you're in between-ish in, I mean, in terms of appearance. Yeah. So, but obviously, you know, have succeeded with white standards of beauty and that's been a part of your career. So it's, must be an interesting position to be in. Yeah. As we were talking about these social movements, one of the things that's happened in the past several years has been the Me Too movement and a kind of awakening of feminist consciousness and, mm-hmm. and a reevaluation of a lot that's gone on in society. I know that the show for which you're best known, Entourage, came in for some retrospective criticism in terms of its portrayal of women. I mean, I've seen the whole series three or four times. It's one of my and my wife's favorite shows. We watch it together. Uh-huh. I think she loves it more than I do. <laughs> and I think you were the highest profile woman on that show. You or Mrs. Ari, one of the two. Yeah. Do you look back and feel comfortable with the way that that show portrayed women and the roles that it gave women? A hundred percent. It's so funny. I actually did an interview about this maybe a couple years ago, just as like the Me Too movement was hitting really hard. And I was asked this question. And the truth is, I think what makes Entourage so special and what made it hit so hard was that in an entertaining way, it was showing exactly what happens in Hollywood. Doug Ellen, the creator, he didn't make up these things like out of the clear blue sky. A lot of his themes and stories came from reality. And I think the truth is women have been subjected to certain treatment and way in Hollywood. And that was depicted in the show. So I'm not mad at it. People have asked me as well, you know, well, do you think it would fly today? And I actually do think that it would. I think people want to see what's real. People want to see what's accurate, not the pipe dream and not the illusion. And that's, again, it's why I think the show was such a success. I agree a hundred percent. I'm glad, I'm glad you backed me up there because now I have it with someone from someone with real authority. I think the show <laughs> completely holds up and I'm sure Superman and Lois is going to be great. You tell us it's debuting on the CW later this month uh-huh. and congrats on the Black Jewish Entertainment Alliance. We definitely want to see where that goes. Emmanuel Shriki, it's Friday. I get to wish you a Shabbat Shalom. Oh, uh, you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for being our Jew of the Week. I hope you'll come back on Unorthodox sometime. I would love that. Thank you so much, Mark. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. 
We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Tell me, tell me, in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox, a listener writes, I just listened to your episode, Brand Awareness, from February 2016, and I have a follow-up on Chris Eigenman's question regarding <laughs> his atheist friend's attempt to convert to Judaism. Do any of your answers change if the atheist is of Jewish ancestry on the father's side? Okay, so pay attention here. This one gets deep in the weeds. My father was adopted, and we only learned of his biological family within the last few months. Being told by his adopted family we were Italian, it's easy to see why we were pretty shocked to find out we're actually Russian Jews. I've always loved Jewish culture, food, humor, and people. Some of my closest friends were always Jews, and they always seemed shocked when I'd say I wasn't Jewish. I acknowledge I'm not atheist, but rather agnostic when it comes to religion. I've spoken to a few synagogues in my area, and they encouraged me to find a different one, either because of the Jewish blood being from my father instead of my mother, or because of my agnostic beliefs, which points to similar reasoning to what Liel has talked about. Although I don't agree with it, I understand Liel's stance in regards to Chris Eigenman's question. I, of course, have no memory of what that question was. Does that stance change when the person in question has Jewish blood and wants to be part of Jewish culture? Thank you for your time, Tyler Shanklin. Tyler, if this draws you... <laughs> Nothing matters, neither blood nor the fundaments of belief. Just marinate in this process for a while. And if this calls out to you, I am sure that plenty of synagogues, or, or let me put it this way, the right synagogues, will definitely welcome you on a meaningful journey that would help you explore this drawing that you're feeling, this pull towards our tradition. I also want to say I do not like the synagogue where you went and said, like, go to a different one because of Jewish blood. It's like, that's not who we are. Yeah. Anyone should be welcome to go to any synagogue. I don't know. I don't like that. Or because the agnostic beliefs, how many people in, in a non-Orthodox synagogue fully believe in God all the time? It's like, that's oh, a little ridiculous. in the Orthodox synagogue. <laughs> I mean, we just don't talk about that stuff. I'm not saying that belief's not important. I don't buy that whole thing like, Jews, it's all about action, not belief. Their belief is very important to Judaism, but there are no tests. Right. When you show up on Shabbos, no one's saying, your belief meter are you at a nine today? So Belief fluctuates, I mean, even for people of faith. Depends on the day, the hour, what's going on, the season of your life. Life. If you're hungry. The, re the reform movement, of course, would say patrilineal descent makes you a Jew. So, But look, what you haven't done is enough shul shopping, which is something Jews who are matrilineal and patrilineal have to do. But you did find the right podcast, and we commend you for that. The best letter of the week. Recall that last week we got a voicemail from listener Stacy Freed. There was this game she played at Camp Nachas when she was a kid. By the way, best named Jewish camp Camp Nachas. Camp Pride. And they sang a song as they passed a shoe around. And at the end, whoever had the shoe got, I don't know, got a noogie or something. And she sang the song for us. And she wanted to know where was it from. She had no idea. It's, it struck her as a nonsense song. And we got an email from a listener named Marillo who writes to us and says, Dear Mark, my name is Marillo and I'm Brazilian. I've recognized the melody of the song at the beginning of the episode. We sing this song, Escravos de Yo. I am not pronouncing this correctly, but it does mean the slaves of Job. Yep, the one from the Bible, although it doesn't say there that he owns slaves. And play a similar game to the one described by the listener. Here's a video. I did some research, and it seems that it was included in a Disney movie from the 40s, Saludos Amigos. Maybe that's how it made its way to the Jewish summer camp. Best wishes from Italy, Murillo. Murillo, I have so many more questions than answers from your email. I want to know about Brazilian Murillo who lives in Italy. I want to know everything about your life. I wrote back to him and said, are you Jewish or just a random Brazilian listener in Italy who writes to us with fabulous responses to other listeners' queries about childhood song. There's so much going on here. Anyway, Stacey Freed, you're welcome. We hope this answers the question. And as ever, we're at 914-570-4869. <laughs>
Dr. Batsheva Marcus is the founder of Maze Women's Sexual Health, the country's largest independent women's sexual health center. And my good buddy, Liel Leibowitz, had a great conversation with her about her new book, Sex Points, Reclaim Your Sex Life with the Revolutionary Multi-Point System. Our guest today is one of my absolute favorite people alive, someone whose wisdom and teaching inspire me in so many ways on so many topics, it's embarrassing. But she is here today to talk, among other things, about her new book, Sex Points, Reclaim Your Sex Life with a Revolutionary Multipoint System. She is, of course, the only person I would ever let be guest host for me when I'm not there, the one and only Dr. Bacheva Marcus. Hello. Hi, Riel. Tell me about the book. You are a sex therapist. We've, we've had many conversations on the show, but the book seems kind of a departure from that. It is rigorously methodological. It involves points, which the German in me absolutely loves. Tell us about this book and, and how it came to be. I'm a sex therapist, but I'm unusual as a sex therapist because I run a sexual health center, which is medical as well as what you think of as classically sex therapy. And over the last 20 years, I've come to believe strongly, 100% convinced that this binary that we split between the head and the body in any medical situation, but certainly with sexual health, is bogus, unhelpful. And that's part of the reason so many people's sex lives is gone down the drain. So Maine Sexual Health, which is the center that I run, which is the largest center in the United States, independent center, does both. Every single woman who walks in, and there is a men's center as well, almost the same model, sees a therapist as well as a medical practitioner. And what we found is that the results are dramatically different. And this is a passion of mine, this idea that your brain and your body interact constantly in ways you would never think reasonable. An example I love to give is that article about how when men stay home, their testosterone levels drop. That's a little bit mind-boggling, right? Our behavior changes our hormone levels. We've sort of come to the conclusion that our hormone levels also change our behavior. So whereas menstruating women, women at their period used to be thought of as crazy, and now we realize the hormones are doing all kinds of wacky things. So I am really a believer that those two things work off each other. So that was a starting point for the opening the center and running the center. I got frustrated, Liel, because you know, only the women in the New York area can come to the center, right? I'm getting calls from all over the country and all over the world. And I'm like, I got to bring this idea to mainstream women. And I got to do it in a way that's accessible. And that doesn't feel overwhelming and scary because there's just a lot of women who sex life is not working for them. Often enough, a medical professional will talk to a woman and say, well, you know, if sex life isn't all you want it to be, then maybe drink a glass of wine and try to relax into it. And, and you're right. Like, you wouldn't say drink a glass of wine and relax to it to someone who came to you with literally any other medical problem. You'd be like, oh, you're feeling, you know, pain in your knee. Just drink a glass of wine and you'll get in the mood for your knee to be better. Exactly. Like we diminish women's sexual issues. We don't pay attention to them. We're just clueless. And the truth is, I don't want to blame doctors because they get six minutes with a patient right now. And it takes a while to kind of figure out what the hell is going on. But yes, I feel like understanding where your problems start from. And the truth is, you know, most women... They don't want to think about their sex lives. That's the God's honest truth. They don't want to because they feel like it isn't working for them. They have no idea what the matter is. They don't really think in their heart of hearts anybody can help them. And they kind of think this is the way it's supposed to be. When you say the way it's supposed to be, you mean the sort of narrative that says, well, of course, you're having hot sex in your 20s because that's what people in their 20s do. But now you're in your 40s or 50s or 60s. So, you know, cuddling is the only erotica you get and you should be grateful for that. Thrilled with that. And I'm like, no, that's terrible. So, yes, that's exactly the message I'm trying to avoid, because I really do believe that with a little bit of know how and a little bit of work, you can keep your sex life going all through your life. Like I have an 82 year old patient who I adore, who has a great sex life. And I taught her how to use vibrators. So I just we need to bust some myths around sex, you know, our overly romanticized views about sex. We have to kind of understand the breakdown of sex. I love the point that you're making in the book about the over romanticized view of sex. It's, it's kind of funny, right? Because you don't necessarily think about it as a view at all. You kind of were so conditioned that we think about this as natural. But you say, well, if you expect sex to be the sort of like conflagration of desire with fireworks going off and the sort of stuff you see in the movies, guess what? Like you have a couple of kids and you have jobs and you have a household to run. It, it, it ain't going to be that. No, 
And, and what people don't realize is that if you have a regular ongoing sex life, that's pretty good. Once in a while, you'll have those fireworks. If you have no sex life and you're expecting the fireworks to just descend upon you and magic pixie dust, it is never going to happen. Sex is something that you have to realize doesn't stay static for your whole life. I don't know where we got this cockamamie idea that like you're 18, you're 22, and you kind of figured out that your sex life is just going to look the same for the rest of your life, which is so absurdly out and such a damaging narrative. So, you know, you change, your body changes, your hormones change, your partner goes on medication, you now have kids, you have more stress in your life, you have less stress in your life. Can I give you an example? Because I think it's the easiest way to sort of describe this whole point system. You're looking for 100 points to have good sex. Because usually people say to me, like, what's broken? Let's fix it, Bachava, as if it's a binary. Like, one thing's off, let's turn it on. Like, what's missing? Let's add it in. And I'm like, that's not a very good model. Right. The car isn't running. How can we fix the car? Exactly. Exactly. You need 100 points to make the car run. But then you need 100 points to get to a good sex life. So I got this woman named, let's call her Tammy. She's, you know, 19 years old. She's in fabulous health physically. She's got 90 points for her own hormones. She can have sex with pretty much anybody, anywhere, because she only needs 10 more points to hit that 100-point threshold, and she'll have good sex. So let's take Tammy now. And she's now 23, and she meets this hot new guy. She falls madly in love. And so she's got 30 points from the hot newness, because we know what that's good for. She got 30 points from the falling madly in love. So she's at 150 points and she's doing great. And it doesn't really matter if, you know, hot new guy, let's call him Josh. So now if Josh does something uniquely irritating and that takes away 20 points, or if Tammy's workload increases to the point where she's exhausted and that takes her 30 points, it doesn't matter. She's still at 120 points and they're still having fine sex. So all is well in the world until now Tammy turns 30. Her hormones have dropped a little bit now. So now her hormones are just at, let's say, a 70. And still madly in love with Josh. So she's got 30 points. Not so hot, new and erotic. She's at 100. She's doing okay. Their sex life is okay until there's a little problem in the relationship or there are now children banging at the door, taking away points, or her hormone levels drop even further. Or she goes on birth control pills, which may also take away points. So now Tammy's at 90 and she's not wanting to have sex. She can't stand the idea of sex and she has no idea what's getting in her way. And she's feeling crappy about herself and it's affecting the relationship. And she walks off. She goes off to see her gynecologist because that's what women do. And the gynecologist will say something to her like, well, Tammy, how was it when you were on vacation last time you went on vacation? And Tammy thinks, and she goes, oh, it was good. It was actually okay. And then the doctor says, well, then clearly it's psychological, Tammy, right? right? And then Tammy leaves feeling worse. Then all you have to do is perpetually live in Cabo and you will be fine. So that's it. So I think we need to start looking at all the myriad inputs in your life. And that's what I try to do. So it starts with a questionnaire trying to get you to see where you're missing points. Of these four quadrants, I break them into desire, arousal, orgasm, and pain. Then it feels like it gives you a really nice roadmap. You see where you're missing points, and I try really hard to help you understand how missing points in one area may really have dramatic effects on missing points in other areas. And you divide it into these four quadrants. How do you come up with those? I mean, they make for a very appealing chart that's on the cover of your book, but also the division there, I think, is very instinctive. Because over the years of working with women, that is where it all boiled down to. When women are having issues with their sex life, it boils down to desire. I don't feel like having sex. And then we have to test out whether that's general for everybody. You don't feel like having sex with your current partner, which is very common in long-term monogamous relationships, which I'm a big fan of. So got to talk about that. Is your problem actually arousal, which always gets mixed up with desire? Like a woman will come and go like, I have no desire. And I'm like, well, tell me a little about it. And she's like, well, I want to have sex, but then I don't get turned on. Can't get the laundry list out of my head. My body doesn't get tingly. Uh huh. You don't have a desire problem, sweetie. You have an arousal problem. Your body is not responding. So that's part two. Orgasm is more self-explanatory. Can you never have an orgasm? You're used to this. I see tons of with women after they have baby number two, perimenopause, menopause. And I want any woman listening to this podcast to know if you had an orgasm and you're getting to a point where it's like, oh, it's so much trouble. It's not worth it anymore. We can get you back there. I promise. So that's the orgasm. And pain, oh, pain, Leo. Women live with pain beyond what you could imagine because people keep telling them they don't see a problem. All of these impact on each other. Like all works of truth and beauty, your book too very often had this kind of blissful ring of the obvious to it, right? You read things and you're like, oh, of course. And yet it seems like the obvious is very far from obvious. How did we get so bad? 
as a society, it's thinking about sex. How did we let all these preconceived notions that when you point out, we kind of like bang our head and say, like, oh, wow, that's silly. How did we get to where we are? I think this may have to do a little bit with our Victorianism and our over-romanticism of sex. Like, we treat sex in this bizarre fashion as if it's supposed to be this miraculous love tonic or something. I don't know how we got that far, and I feel like more frustrating to me than how we got far from it is how hard it is to get people back to understanding what reality is, right? So, you know, there's huge pushback, honestly, from sex therapists on this too, to be fair. Like, rather than sex therapists saying, oh my God, here's some more tools that can make our job much easier. A lot of them feel like, oh, stop medicalizing this. Like, stop convincing people that they need some kind of physiological help. But I feel like give people the choice and use as many tools as you have in your toolkit. Whenever there's any problems with sex, immediately people jump to it's the relationship. It's a little frightening to me, right? Like you can spend a year and a half with a therapist who you went to see because your sex life is in the toilet. And she says, or he says, you know, let's get the communication back on track. And then the sex life will follow. That's what people think. That's bullshit. Nobody seems to suggest, you know what, if we can get their sex life back on track, maybe the emotional piece and the talking piece will actually fall into place better, which I also think can be true as well. I really do believe in my heart of hearts that it is possible and not only possible, but laudable to make long-term sexual relationships work and work well. And there needs to be somebody out there giving voice to the way to make that happen. And I think this book really helps in that regard. Do you feel like an outlier for saying this? Do you feel like you're in the counterculture now just for expressing this view that, I mean, 15 years ago or 20 years ago used to be so mainstream as to not even merit speaking? Well, I'm always in the counterculture. That's my life. You know, <laughs> I'm an orthodox feminist. That's pretty damn countercultural. The therapy community does not like that I take a medical approach in addition. And I really, by the way, don't try to privilege it. I think that they're both equally important and need to be looked at, but they are equally important. I think the medical community rolls thighs a little bit because I take the therapy piece of it a little too seriously. So yeah, in the sex therapy community, am I an outlier? You know what? I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think the loud voices are the ones that do talk about the things that seem a little bit more shocking. I think that gets a lot of attention, but I think most sex therapists by and large are seeing couples who want to make their sex life better. I'm actually writing a guide to go along with this for therapists, for couples counselors, because I feel like most counselors still have relationships in front of them where people want to make those relationships work. And our job is to be to help them do it. And I think we haven't had the tools to do that. There's something very Talmudic about this book. And I mean this in, in, in the best term. There's, there's a story in the Talmud that you've come on take one and, and helped elucidate about a rabbi making love to his wife and peeking under the bed and finding one of his students observing him and saying, hey, man, what are you doing? Why are you watching me having sex with my wife? And the student says, well, that's also a Torah. I need to learn somehow. And there's something about this that strikes me as very much in that spirit of, you know, everything is and should be examined and examinable. Do, do you feel that kind of spirit? Do you feel that this kind of being an, an, an Orthodox Jewish woman informs the particular approach that you have? I think so. I mean, that story about Rav Kahana under Rava's bed, you know, it's like my favorite story. And he ends it with what you said, Zotorah, the right? Like this too is Torah. I need to learn this. And I guess I feel like Judaism, some strains of Judaism, not all, put a value on pleasure. But I think the value on pleasure is in service to greater good to this world, which I do think is building families and building committed relationships. And so I think the message has got to get out there, Leah, like you can do this. Like you can have pleasure back in your life. And it sounds so trite for me to say that I feel like we're put in this world to do something. And it's never clear 100% what that thing is. And it may be just bringing up three amazing kids, which I did. But I do think there is something about putting out into the world this idea that sex can be a part of a long-term meaningful relationship. And you as an individual, even if you're not in a relationship, you're entitled to get access to your the part of you that's a sexual being because that's a serious part of yourself and giving up on it or ignoring it or shoving it into the closet and closing the door because it's just too painful to think about doesn't have to be the only option. So yes, I do think I you know live in the spirit of the part of the tunnel that's sex positive because you and I know that there's a hell of a lot not sex positive stuff. And for that and for this book and for your spirit and your wisdom and your heart, we are so grateful. Dr. Bacheva Marcus, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me.
Our Jew of the Week is Chancellor Shuli Rubin Schwartz. In July 2020, she took over as the eighth chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary, the flagship seminary of the conservative Jewish movement in America. She's also a writer and scholar and is the author of The Rabbi's Wife, the pioneering book about the history of Rebetzins, or rabbis' wives, in America. And we're so pleased to have Dr. Shuli Rubin Schwartz with us today. Good morning. Good morning. It's a great pleasure for me to be here as well. So as a conservative Jew, I'm talking to you, you're sort of like, you're not like the boss of everything, but you're, you know, the Rebbe. I mean, this is big. So congratulations. How are you liking the work so far? I am loving the work so far, but uh, I'm not sure I see myself as like the big head honcho of uh, conservative movement. I am the chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary, which you're certainly correct. It has great affinity with the conservative movement and particularly conservative Judaism, but... No, I know. And it also has, it has everything from an undergraduate college to several graduate programs. I understand. It's just that as somebody looking for a guru or a cult figure, I'm just going to latch onto you if that's okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So your dad was a congregational rabbi at a big congregation. There are challenges to that because in a sense, all eyes are on you. You know, if you get busted for shoplifting penny candy, that's a big shanda in the community, but it's also kind of cool. How was it for you? It was very cool for me. My dad was beloved and my mother was fiercely protective of the privacy of the family and they never, they did not impose any expectations on us. So as the great historian of rabbinic wives, of Rebetzins, was that interest prompted by seeing your mom? Absolutely. I really thought at first I was going to write one article about my mother's generation of post-war rabbinic wives, because it was pretty obvious to me, just looking at her and all of her peers, that rabbinic couples brought Jewish life to suburbia, not just the rabbis, but as an American Jewish historian, I never saw anything about the wives. It talked about these great rabbis who came out to suburbia. And I thought, all right, let me write an article and talk a bit about the work. My mother taught Hebrew classes in the in our living room. We had company often. She was involved in sisterhood, all of those sorts of things. And what I discovered when I wrote that article is that I was coming in in the middle of that story. And so then I it really grew into a book. And I went back to the late 19th century and then brought it forward until the 1980s. If you were to update it today, if you were to do the second edition, what is the status of the rabbinic spouse in 2021, as far as you can tell? I think that there's still a story. It's not as interesting a story. Here I am, prime example, right? Women can become leaders in their own right. Women rabbis we now have two generations of women rabbis. So the interesting story to me is the gendered nature of the rabbinate when you have all genders as rabbis now. And what does that actually mean? What does it mean when women serve in that role? What are the expectations that congregations place on them? What are the expectations they place on themselves? It's kind of hard to entertain Friday night when you're also leading services. But Probably many women want to do both. So tell us about JTS, the Jewish Theological Seminary. It is such a rich institution. It has five schools. Yes, of course, we train rabbis. That was the first school at JTS and the school that people know best. We also train cantors. We train Jewish educators in the graduate school. We train Jewish communal professionals and academics. And then our undergraduate program students are also getting a second degree at Barnard or Columbia, and most of them do not go on to careers in the Jewish world. And to a large degree, many of them become lay leaders, the chairs of Jewish summer camps or the preschool or the day school or the synagogue president, all that. Speaking of summer camps, you've also written about the history of Camp Ramah, right? Yeah, that was my master's thesis. What did you discover about the history of Ramah? I wrote the first history of the founding of Ramah. It was also part of that impulse in the post-war period to provide Jewish summer camps for Jewish kids. It was a partnership between the United Synagogues, so the lay and rabbinic leadership in Chicago, and the Jewish Theological Seminary, which provided the educational and religious vision of Ramah and the first place where they realized that was in Chicago. What do you hope the most lasting change of the Shuli Rubin Schwartz Chancellorship is at JTS? Oh, I... 
I hope that we are an institution that provides a home for individuals who are looking for and care about a rich, meaningful Judaism, rich, meaningful Jewish learning, rich, meaningful Jewish community, one that is nuanced, one that is um, embracing of difference, and one that is both confident in its message and humble in its recognition that it is one of many institutions that can provide different kinds of meaning for Jews. Chancellor Schwartz, thank you so much for joining us. Mazel tovs. Stephanie Putnick, do you have a mazel tov? I have two mazel tovs to listeners in our Facebook group who have reinvigorated the Jewish autocorrect fail thread because of Passover. I want to share these with you. This comes from Peter Weinberger. A lot of people refer to horseradish as hrain. And so this is someone who says, I can't eat my gefilte fish without an abundant supply of chronic, which is what hrain autocorrected to. <laughs> which people really were like, yeah, I mean, that's that's legit. Could you infuse your hrain with chronic? You could, right? Anything's possible. Maybe like on Sukkot, we could do that. No, we would do it on, what's the holiday we invented? Fifth of Shvat. Fifth of Shvat. It's chronic infused hrain. But no matzah, please. <laughs> so this, the second one comes from Amy Christman Pine, who says, I talk texted Hag Sameach into Google, and this is what it transcribed. Hugs some ass. Yeah. She wished someone that they hug some ass for Passover. Smoke some chronic and hug some ass. Like, Google thinks we're really gangsta. <laughs> my mazel tov is to my cousin, Brian Kirshner, who this week became engaged to his lovely lady friend, Danielle. And we look forward to an enormous wedding in Philadelphia in post-COVID time. Couldn't be happier for the whole Kirshner clan. Liel. So a mazel tov and a farewell. First of all, to listener Jill Kern, who on the Facebook thread of this year Unorthodox podcast group, Stephanie Butnick alerted me of this conversation going on while I was perusing Disney World, started an unbelievable thread about my accent, <laughs> which I can't tell you how deeply I enjoy. So Jill, uh, thank you very much. I am very touched by uh, your interest. It's very good. No, the best thing was it was like, how come Liel doesn't have an accent? Is he really from Israel? Everybody knows from it. Like, and people are like, people are going in the weeds and being like, here are the words he says where you can hear his accent. When he says the word Sheboygan, he sounds very foreign. <laughs> it's a very suspicious thread of like Liel's backstory. I love it. And the farewell to the great Jessica Walter. Don't you judge me. You're the selfish one. You're the one who charged his own brother for a Bluth frozen banana. I mean, it's one banana, Michael. What could it cost? Ten dollars? You've never actually set foot in a supermarket, have you? I don't have time for this. Lucille Bluth from Arrested Development. Rest in peace. And when we say blessed be the true judge, we mean her. <laughs> She's, I happen to be rewatching all of Arrested Development anyway, and the genius of that show. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the World Wide Web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodoxtabletmag.com or call us and leave a pithy and witty voicemail, 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. We often come to you live to book us or advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross, cross with a K, at jcross at tabletmag.com. For swag, stuff to wear to our forthcoming live shows, go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodoxpodcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group and argue about whether Liel is really is Israeli. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our associate producer is Robert Scaramucci. Our tablet fellow is Ellie Blyer. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Our Maror tester, Richard Rosengarten, so busy this week. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Judith Lazarus Siegel of Temple Judea in Coral Gables, Florida. We come to you again from the scattered locations of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.